hey y'all happy black history month but it's black history month all the time here we're always talking black history so i'm just gonna forge ahead because i am super excited I don't think it's come up before, but the concentration of my history degree isn't Black history. It's actually Abrahamic religion, because I've always been very interested in how people's religious beliefs have shaped history. And that's what today's episode is about. It's about reconstruction, which I know I promised y'all a long time ago I was going to do. So today we're going to talk about reconstruction and how people's religious beliefs shape their social and political decision making, particularly in North Carolina, but as a window into all of Reconstruction and the decisions that Black Americans were making right after emancipation. My guest today is Dr. Matthew Harper of Mercer University, author of the book, The End of Days, African-American Religion and Politics in the Age of Emancipation. Welcome to my show, Professor. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I think to really understand why religion was so important to how Black Americans saw the Reconstruction period, we really have to focus on the religious weight of emancipation, because it was a huge deal. And that really shaped everything Black America was doing going forward. So let's start with the religious significance of emancipation. It's hard to overestimate how important freedom was when it came. Whenever I'm studying, I'm always focused on what was it like for people who lived their lives completely circumscribed by slavery, devastated and traumatized by it, and yet still imagined a radically different world than the one that they grew up in. And there are so many Black prophets along the way that say, God will not tolerate slavery to continue. He will intervene on behalf of the oppressed. And those prophets come, and as you get closer to the Civil War, they come more and more. I think of someone like David Walker, published a pamphlet in 1829 called An Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. He was a Black Methodist from Eastern North Carolina. His father was enslaved, but his mother was a free Black woman. He wrote this pamphlet. It said, wake up, Americans, because God will not tolerate this injustice, and he's coming, and you're going to pay for this kind of injustice. And so it'd be better for you to abolish slavery now before you wait for God to come and do it in his own way. And David Walker in that pamphlet gets really specific. I mean, he even tells slaveholders, I wouldn't be surprised if God decided to end slavery by having white Americans turn on each other in a bloody civil war. He says that 30 years before the civil war happens, sort of this prophecy. But we see that same kind of prophet's spirit coming in slave spirituals. We see it when visitors go to secret prayer meetings that enslaved people have. We see it in the public prayer meetings that Black churches had before the Civil War, the sense that God is a God of deliverance. And so there's so much prayer, there's so much prophecy that God will intervene on behalf of his people and that enslaved Black Americans are his people. With all of that buildup, all of those hopes and yearnings and groans and expectations, when it finally happens, when enslaved people get free, God has just shown up in a radically different way. I think you even see that in the um, watch nights that show up in Black churches. So the change of the meaning of January 1st for Black churches and Black families. So often at the beginning of a new year, enslavers would decide who was going to be sold and who was going to be kept and who was going to be rented out to a different plantation, who was going to be sold down the river. And so enslaved people looked 
towards January 1st with fear and trembling because is this the January that I'm losing my son? Is this the January that my wife is going to be sold away from me? Is this the January that my daughter is going to be rented out to the overseer that we know is brutal? There's so much pain and fear that builds up to January 1. But then January 1, 1863 is the date that the Emancipation Proclamation comes into effect. Waiting for January 1 has a totally different meaning. It's like we were waiting to see how awful this was going to be. And now we're waiting for God's deliverance and it's here, you know, this radical intervention of God into human history. I've never experienced something that important. I, I think it'd be hard for a lot of people to sort of scratch their their heads and think of, is there a moment in my life as radical as yesterday, my children could be legally taken from me and brutalized and I could do nothing. And today... I am free and I have tools to protect my family and my children. That is just a, it's a huge divide. I don't, I don't think we can ever put too much emphasis on emancipation. Truly. And because it had so much weight and because it had been prophesied for so long, not every Black person at this point had accepted Christianity. That right. was the religion of the oppressor. But after this, if, if you didn't believe in God before this, you were very into Christian God after this. It really changed the focus religiously of really all of Black America. Right. And you see this Black pastors, Black missionaries during emancipation write about this huge growth, huge growth in conversions, revivals, church memberships. It does something to community to say, okay, well, for these 30, 50, 60 years, we've been hearing people talk about how God was going to deliver us, but he doesn't day after day. There's no deliverance. But then when deliverance comes, when freedom comes, people think, oh, well, maybe this is real. And uh, maybe these prophecies are real. Maybe these prayers are being answered. And so you do, we see a revival in Black churches. It's, it's a rapid period of growth in Black churches. One, because Black Christians decide to leave white-controlled churches. They're seeking their own religious independence. But that doesn't explain all the growth that we see. What we actually see is an awakening, a revival. So because this was such a huge event that people attributed to God specifically intervening for his people, Black people, that really influenced the political decisions Black people made afterwards. Because after you feel like you're like God's chosen person who he very violently intervened to history for, that's a lot of weight. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think people began to ask, okay, what's God up to? God answered the prayers. He intervened on behalf of the oppressed. He ended slavery. What is next? What does God have in store for us? You see even people radically changing their political directions. Someone like Martin Delaney, a free Black writer and a speaker before the Civil War, despaired of Black life in America. He was like, we have to charter ships and go back to Africa. There's no hope for us here. There's no future for us here. It didn't even really seem possible. Even constitutionally, there wasn't a constitutional way to abolish slavery. He just looked at it and said, this isn't going to happen. There's no future here. We have to go somewhere else. And then emancipation happened, followed very quickly by the 14th Amendment, which granted all people born in the United States citizenship rights, which means the formerly enslaved now had citizenship rights, guaranteed equal protection under the law. 
and all the rights and privileges that come with that, followed quickly by the 15th Amendment, which in effect gave black men the right to vote. And then all of a sudden people say, oh, actually, there is a future here, right? There is a possibility here that that black life could be really different. And Delaney temporarily says, no, no, let's forget these plans for Africa. I'm coming home. I want to be a part of whatever it is that God is up to because he's up to something big here. And so then at every moment, if God intervened in human history, he has a plan. He has a plan for black people. He has a special role for them. That role may be in the United States instead of somewhere else. And so black people began to say, particularly black Christians, okay, what's my role in this? As a community, what do we do? We have to figure out God's plan for the future and participate in it. And that affects every political decision they make. Where should you move? Should you buy property? What political party should you be involved in? What laws need to be passed? Almost every political conversation comes up to, we know God is doing something. We know he's on our side. What is he doing? Where do we go next? And because people were trying to figure out what God's plan was, you show pretty often that throughout the Reconstruction period, which parts of the Bible Black people drew on to make decisions changed, even at some points conflicted. Some people would think one thing was going to happen. We're like, this is the part of the Bible that we're living in, or this is the part of the Bible that this looks like. And one of the first places in the book that you talk about it is land redistribution and the idea of what it looked like the day of Jubilee or the Exodus story. Let's talk about what those two things are and how they were in contrast. We can start with the Exodus story, which I think is more familiar to most people. That's the the biblical story that enslaved Hebrews are led out of Egypt with Moses. They're led to the promised land. This is a story Black Americans had resonated with for a very long time, thought about, sung about. It was actually a part of the Bible that slaveholders worked really hard to make sure that slaves didn't hear about in church. This idea of God leading a large group of people out of slavery at the same time and punishing the people who kept them enslaved. That's not the kind of story that enslavers want to have preached about, but the story still resonated deeply with enslaved communities thinking about that. And so that was a natural way to think, okay, well, what did God have in plan for the ancient Hebrews when he brought them out of Egypt? And what he did was lead them to a promised land. That is, he was going to not just give them freedom, he was going to give them land and a place for them. But in that story, they don't get Egypt. They get led out of Egypt, and the land that they give is somewhere far away. They wander for 40 years and then eventually enter the land that had been promised to them. So a number of Black Americans use this Exodus story to say, well, if God freed us, then he's going to lead us somewhere where we're going to have land and we're going to have political control over that land. So where is that place? Maybe that's out west. Maybe it's in Kansas. Maybe it's even further west. Maybe that's into a city or into the northern U.S. Maybe it's into Canada. Maybe it's to go to Haiti where Black people already were running an independent country. Maybe they could join Haiti. Maybe it was to go to Liberia or to somewhere else in West Africa and begin to think, God's going to give us land, just like he gave the Hebrews in Exodus. But others looked at the Jubilee story, which is less well-known in the Hebrew scriptures. Jubilee was a practice, a feature of Levitical law in Israel that said for 49 years, seven sevens, All kinds of things could happen. People could buy and sell land. People might get into debt. They might lose that land. They might have to indenture 
themselves, or they might be sold into slavery because of the poverty that they got themselves into or misfortune. And so people were buying and selling land and buying and selling people. At the end, the Jubilee, the 49th year, the priest announced that it's the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee means anyone who's enslaved or indebted finds freedom. You free your debts, erase the balances, free all the slaves, and any land that's been lost gets redistributed. So those same people who become enslaved get the land that they had been working on. And it sort of starts over from scratch. This doesn't really work well with modern capitalism. It doesn't really fit that system. But this is a vision that God himself owns the land and no one really owns it themselves. And so it, it doesn't really make sense for somebody to just keep getting richer and richer and other people to find themselves completely disinherited. That's not God's vision in that law. So that law says freedom comes with land, but it's you get redistributed the land that you're on in Jubilee. And there were many reasons for Black Americans to think that was God's plan for them. There were land redistribution schemes that took place during the Civil War, Union officers who divvied up confiscated Confederate land. There were plans for that early in Reconstruction, and a number of formerly enslaved people were just, they knew that was going to happen. They were waiting for it, even if they didn't get land redistribution. And it seemed like a reasonable thing to expect. The federal government at the same time was confiscating Native American land and redistributing it to white Americans uh, as part of the Homestead Act. It wasn't like the federal government on principle was opposed to the idea of land confiscation and redistribution. It was happening in small scales around the edges of the South. It happened in James City, North Carolina. It happened on the Sea Islands off the coast of Georgia. All this talk of 40 acres and a mule. Those promises were made, then they were taken away. But all along the line, the question is, is God's plan to give land ownership to Black people in the South, or is God's plan to give them land somewhere else? And that leads to heated political debates within Black communities. Everyone knows that God's plan is freedom plus land. Question is, where is that land? Oh, you talk about, because Jubilee is a very kind of sudden, very quick economic turnover, in the first years right after emancipation, Black people were just kind of like, it's going to be this day. It's coming Christmas this year. We're going to get land. And that's just wild to think about people. They had a date in mind. They were like, it's coming. It's coming. I think that's all emboldened by emancipation. Prophecies came true. So this idea that God will give us land, we believe it. We've prayed for it. We see that pattern in these biblical stories. People get freed and then they get land. And and there's this emboldened confidence, this sense that anything could happen. Because freedom happened, because God freed us, what stops him from doing the next thing that we need, right? And they needed land. In an agricultural society, if they didn't have land, their former owners could feed or starve them as they please. You needed land to actually experience freedom on a daily basis. And so there was a strong belief that God wouldn't have freed them without providing some pathway to land ownership. And for many people, that became rumors that Christmas Day, 1865, or January 1st, 1866, that's when the big plans were going to be announced. And some of these plans, they sounded an awful lot like apocalyptic prophecies from the book of Revelation, that there was going to be a big scroll. The seals on the scroll would be broken. That's a direct image from Revelation. So the seals are being broken on these scrolls. The scrolls are going to be unfurled, and someone's going to read the plan for land redistribution. So there was kind of a divide between these two images of are we getting land here or do we need to go somewhere to get land? And specifically, you talk about a lot of Black leaders, both of churches and just of Black communities, 
one of the big divides was between them and lay people. Black leadership was very much like, we have to stay here. Yeah. And there's a real incentive for Black leaders to call for people to stay where they are. If the Black population moves or disperses, those that are running Black businesses, those that are the head of Black churches, they lose their livelihoods. Keeping the Black community in the town where Black leaders have a leadership position is really important to them, and migration really threatens that leadership. And so that's not surprising. I think also there's some concern among Black leaders that less educated Black agricultural workers are going to be preyed upon by unscrupulous people with these migration schemes. And of course, there were plenty of these cotton planters in what was then the Southwest, like Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas. They're having a labor shortage. So they're going around promising the moon to African-Americans in Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina and Virginia and saying, hey, move this way and you'll have a better life. And, and everyone gets excited and they're like, maybe this is it. This is the promised land. But often those were really unscrupulous people. Those land and labor agents were delivering people into worse political environments, worse economic environments than the ones they were leaving from. And you had like pastors writing from those places saying, don't send people here. It's horrible here. And so there is a concern that these expectations of land will lead people to prey upon Black Americans. So there's that pull, too. You talk about how the Black pastors, they were always preaching about God's timing and patience because Jubilee, people thought it was going to be very sudden. They were ready for it, like right after emancipation. And that didn't pan out. So as years turned into decades, the religious narrative was always like, we have to wait on God's timing. Things don't always happen all of a sudden like that in the Bible. Right. They're making those sermons. They're making those political speeches, urging patients, wait, don't move, don't do anything drastic. God will eventually give us these promises. But that message loses power over time. They're unable to convince poor Black Americans that they should wait, that they shouldn't do something. And we see migration picking up. I shouldn't say all Black leaders were advising against migration. Some thought it was a good idea. I mean, Ida B. Wells would be one who said, yeah, actually, the Deep South is not going to afford you protection over your own body, and you've got to get out. There's no justice here. And she herself has to leave Memphis. And so there are plenty of Black leaders who are saying migration is an open option. It's something that maybe fits with biblical narratives. There's a biblical story that supports the desire to migrate, and there's some real political and economic reasons to get out of the South. But those who are saying, don't stay, Booker T. Washington's one of those too. Cast down your bucket where you are. Don't go anywhere. You have a future here in the South. As Jim Crow policies get passed, as economic opportunities for Black people dwindle, as sharecropping turns into prison of sorts where people are tied to the land through debt and don't see a way to break out of it year by year. And when they do try to organize, they meet violence. Those people begin to say, okay, we're done waiting (laughs) and really want to pursue something else and move in somewhere else. It's really interesting, though, that when they do, they also are using biblical stories. So it's not those who say God doesn't have a plan for us versus those who say God does. It's often the debate is happening. God does have a plan for us. We can find out what his plan for us is by reading biblical stories, but they choose to read different biblical stories. Yeah. Another story that you talk about drawing from that ooh, it was super interesting was the book of Esther. And that that just came out of nowhere for me. So let's talk about the book of Esther <laughs> and, and how that fit into 
how Black people imagine God's plan for them looking. I remember I found in the archives a document that many other historians have found and used before, but it caught me so much by surprise when I found it. This was a circular that Black legislators in North Carolina had written up to protest the activity of the Ku Klux Klan in North Carolina. The Klan violence had become so intense that they feared for their lives. They also feared for their political future. It seemed that the Klan was intimidating Black voters, intimidating white voters who were allying with Black people, and there weren't going to be free and fair elections. And the Klan was not only going to terrorize in the streets, but then they were going to become the state legislators and they were going to pass laws in their favor. And disastrous things could happen to Black interests in the state. It was a real moment in Reconstruction where they realized, oh my gosh, it all could go away. It was a lot of fear and terror. And this circular is written, written, this is not a church document, this is not, this is not a sermon. These are political leaders who are issuing a circular to the entire state about a political issue. But they say, we are living out the story of Esther, the story from the Hebrew Bible of Esther. And they walk through this extended metaphor, lining up everybody in the story of Esther with real people in North Carolina and where they are in the drama. It allows them sort of imagine, what does it mean to both be God's chosen people, God's on your side, but you're living in a hostile land And the people who seem most powerful in that land are trying to kill you. And that's exactly the context for the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, the people of God, the Hebrews, are living in exile. They're in Persia. There's a king there who has, unbeknownst to him, picked out a beautiful Hebrew woman, Esther, and made her one of his queens, but doesn't really know who she is or her background or her people. But he's got evil advisors who are plotting to kill all the Jews. They even get the king to sign a royal edict that would call for the killing of all of all the Jews on a very specific day. And Esther, the queen, her uncle prevails upon her to say, listen, God put you in this place for a reason. You're in this position of power and influence. So all the Jews pray and fast. And then Esther goes into the king and she reveals that she's a Hebrew and pleads for her people. And the king says, wait, what's going on? Who's killing whom? And then he decides to get rid of, he kills the advisor who called for the massacre of the Jews. In the story, royal edicts can never be repealed. He can't undo what he's already done, calling for the massacre of Jews, but he can issue a new edict. And the new edict says that all the Jews have the right of self-defense and we'll help them. So it's like, yeah, that first edict calling for a massacre of Jews is still standing, but here's another edict that says the Jews get to defend themselves and we'll help them. And they, the legislators position themselves as Esther. God's put them in a position of power at a very critical moment. They call for prayer and fasting throughout the entire state. And on the face of it, this call for prayer and fasting looks like a pretty passive response to the kind of clan violence that they're receiving, praying and fasting while the clan is running around murdering and pillaging. But if you read the story carefully, and people at the time did, they realized that they're saying, we have the right of armed self-defense in this moment, and we're going to pray, and we believe that God will deliver us, but God's deliverance of us is not separate from us arming ourselves. It's not separate from us appealing to the U.S. Army to also help defend us. We have a right to armed self-defense, and we'll find a way to survive in this hostile land where people want us dead. And so it becomes a really powerful story to imagine how do you live out the really violent and difficult circumstances that came during Reconstruction. 
I really like that it the prescription was we pray, we fast, but also we're going to get some guns and be ready for whatever's coming for us. Right, right. And we have that right. And of course, white newspapers get all upset. One, they're sort of mocking the black legislators because they think they're as important as Queen Esther. They're sort of mocking that. But they're also really alarmed. They know what they're doing by evoking the story of Queen Esther. They're praying and they're fasting, but they're also organizing themselves into militias. So time kept going and things got worse. The close of Reconstruction was the opening of Klan violence and Jim Crow. And the state for Black Southerners just degraded very quickly. So... Another approach that you talk about in the book and another way that Black people mapped themselves onto the Bible was through Jeremiah, which I'm going to leave it to you to explain to us what those are. But I guess the most important thing is it was kind of like a way of chastisement and thinking maybe Black people are the problem. They are the ones holding themselves back from the full promise. Tell us about what a Jeremiah is. Jeremiah is one of the grimmest prophets in the Hebrew Bible, telling God's special people that your misbehavior, your misdeeds, your lack of trust, your lack of faith in me, your tendency to go after other things for comfort and security instead of coming to me, all of those are going to come back to bite you, prophesying, exile coming, destruction coming. And Jeremiah is not the only one. There's this a long tradition in the Hebrew scriptures of prophets coming and saying, we have messed up, so brace yourself. Bad times are coming because we've messed up. The Jeremiah has another feature. The whole point of the Jeremiah is to say, bad times are coming and you're being chastised, but you're being chastised precisely because you are God's chosen people. This land belongs to you. God made the promises to your ancestors. God intervened to free your ancestors. And after the punishment, the chastisement, something good is coming. God is using the enemies of his people who are his enemies too, right, as a way to chastise or discipline his own people, right? And they sort of say that if a, if a father doesn't discipline his son, he's disowned his son. Um, and so, the Jeremiah has two pieces. It has this grim, oh no, bad things are coming and it's our fault. But it also has this uplifting, things will ultimately be okay because we are God's people and the people who are hurting us right now are God's enemies. And it recasts who's who in that story. White Americans do this, Jeremiah. Oh, woe is us where things are bad. We've gone away from God's plan as God's chosen people. This happens as well. Black Americans do one kind of Jeremiah where they, I mentioned David Walker earlier, who has a Jeremiah and directs it at white Americans and says, America is going to face punishment and chastisement because it is sinning. The oppression that America is giving to Black people is going to come back to bite them. So that's one kind of Jeremiah. But that kind of Jeremiah positions America as God's chosen people. But often in Black church traditions, it's Black people themselves that are God's chosen. For the Jeremiah to work there has to be a sense that we've done something wrong. We're experiencing negative circumstances because we've wandered away from God's plan for us. But the very fact that things are going bad reinforces that God does have a plan for us. If he didn't have a plan for us and we weren't his chosen people, then we wouldn't be disciplined for straying from his plan. That's definitely a recurring thing throughout the whole book is that there was never a loss of hope in not being part of God's plan. There was just different ways of interpreting why it wasn't happening the way everyone imagined it to happen or imagined that it would happen. And one of the big things around 
the Jeremiah and we must be doing something wrong was a big move for temperance. Yeah, you spent like a whole chapter on the movement for temperance. <laughs> so we definitely need to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a whole chapter about alcohol use, not because I wanted to, but because that's what the people were talking about. I read years and years of Black church newspapers. I read years and years of convention minutes and conference minutes where Black pastors got together. I read autobiographies and temperance, the movement to ban or limit alcohol is all over there. There's a fear, particularly in North Carolina, that Black voters didn't support efforts to ban alcohol. And because they didn't, God was going to punish them politically. There were some people who thought that. There were others who thought that because Black people had decided to stop voting or to vote with another party, that that was a lass of faith. They were abandoning the plan and that that's why bad things were happening politically. There's all kinds of messages that people aren't living right. If we would live right, if we wouldn't drink, if we would respect our marriages, if we would be respectable, follow all of God's rules and God's laws, things would be going better than they are. But they're coming back to bite us because we're not opposed to alcohol in the way they thought that God was. This is particularly true among Methodists and Baptists at the time, which make up the overwhelming majority of Black Protestants. And they find sometimes only a half-hearted support of temperance within Black communities. And they say, ah, that must be why. They're looking for a reason. Why is it that things have turned bad for us? And maybe this is one reason. Yeah. And ooh, you talk about respectability and you talk about in the book the way that historians usually look at this movement for temperance as respectability politics, as Black people looking at how they're being perceived by white people and trying to be perceived as respectable. But through reading these newspapers, it's seeing the Jeremiah way of talking about it. It wasn't necessarily, I mean, they did care about how white people saw them, but there was also this aspect of like, it was about as a people, their relationship to God and trying to repair it. Right. I think one of the ways that you keep reinforcing a sense that you belong to God is constant scrutiny on yourself. Am I living the way that God wants me to live? Are we as a people doing what we're supposed to be doing? And that scrutiny that's turned inward in some ways is a necessary part of saying we belong to God. Some of that has really little to do with a white audience. This is something that's about Black communities' relationship with God. Now, some part of it does have to do with the white audience. Some of it has to do with class tensions in the Black communities, where there's a Black middle class that feels like the unruly behavior of the Black lower classes is hurting their chances of moving up in society, of being accepted, of integrating into spaces and getting the respect that the community needs in order to pass certain laws. So there is this sort of fear that they won't be respectable in the eyes of whites if they don't endorse temperance. But that's certainly not the whole piece of it. Black temperance leaders are opposed to alcohol for their own reasons. Their own faith has convince them that alcohol is a bad influence. Their own experience in poor communities has experienced them that alcohol does negative things to their own community. They don't have to be performing a kind of respectability to a white audience to be opposed to alcohol. And they don't have to be fixated on a white audience for them to be self-critical. There is an important piece of that self-criticism, which is also self-affirmation. One more thing on this temperate aspect is you mentioned that it the Black community was not super enthusiastic about embracing temperance. 
like slavery had just ended. They didn't really want white people to be telling them what they could and could not do right after being enslaved. And in North Carolina, Black leaders pushed for temperance, but Black voters didn't generally support it. So it didn't pass in the 1880s. But to be honest, so white temperance leaders blame Black voters for the failure of these temperance measures. But white voters aren't voting for them either, right? And so there is a scapegoating that happens when people say that these temperance measures failed because Black voters, they don't vote for the moral causes, when in fact, white voters weren't either. You can't blame this on on Black voters. But that becomes another fear that Black leaders have, that if Black voters aren't voting for upstanding moral causes, that will become a pretext for white communities to deny Black communities the right to vote. And that's exactly, I mean, that does happen. It does. From that moment, things get so much worse. There's like a straight line from that election to the Wilmington coup. Things get a lot worse. And because Black people are still trying to figure out where in the Bible they fit, you talk about how they start to identify with the crucifixion of Jesus. Right. So the Hebrew scriptures, what we've been talking a lot about, are all about an oppressed people, an underdog. All throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God seems to have a special place for the underdog, the younger son, the woman who can't get pregnant, the smallest tribe, the littlest kid, the weakest people. God intervenes with and for the underdog on behalf, not of the mighty empire, but of the tiny oppressed people. And that trend that Black Americans latch onto, right? It's powerful for them. That trend also shows up in the New Testament most powerfully in the story of Jesus Christ, who is God's only son and yet doesn't take over a kingdom, isn't powerful and successful, in fact, goes to the cross and is tortured and killed. And again, shows that God identifies with the oppressed, with the weak and the poor and the lowly. It's been central to Black Christianity for a very long time. I mean, I think of a number of slave spirituals that focus on the real physical anguish of the crucifixion, something that Black Americans know really well, what it's like to be physically tortured, to watch people die. And in the 1890s, there were plenty of times to stop and reflect on Black anguish, on physical torment, emotional and spiritual torment. In North Carolina in the 1890s, 30 years after the beginning of Reconstruction, there's another moment of biracial politics that makes it seem like, okay, maybe it's possible that even more can get done here. Maybe it's possible that white and black voters can come together, make some real changes. And there's some excitement. The sort of elite white Southerners get voted out of office. They lose the governorship. They lose the state legislature. And a whole bunch of poor white farmers and poor black farmers have united together as one voting block and elected an entirely different group of leaders in. And the real changes start happening. It's exciting. But that excitement about the possibility for Black progress is quickly met with white violence. There's these violent campaigns uh, overtone those election results, and all that leads to a really bloody coup in the city of Wilmington in 1898. There, this white-Black coalition was successful. Electorally, they still held the city council, a lot of important posts. So mobs decided to round up elected officials, kill them, put them on trains to exile them from town. They burn Black businesses. They burn Black neighborhoods and Black churches. Black people flee into the swamps to try to escape the violence. At the end of the day, this armed white mob takes over the city government. 
installs themselves as the leaders. And the state does nothing. The national government does nothing to this armed group of men who were not elected, who take over the city government of Wilmington. That's just sort of like a height of what people experienced at the end of the 1890s. But it would have happened in lots of other different ways. Lots of violence, lots of political losses, Jim Crow segregation throughout all areas of life, moves to take away voting rights from Black men. All of this is what followed in that movement. The real sort of settling into policies that created a kind of permanent second-class citizenship for Black people and denied them economic opportunities and political rights, and even protection over their own bodies and increase in lynchings. It's, it's hard, again, to overestimate how depressing the 1890s were as a decade for Black Americans. And you see this kind of despair when Black churches get together in the aftermath of something like the coup. They get together for conferences, for conventions. You can see it in the songs that they picked to sing. Funeral songs. There's a sense of deep, deep sorrow. One of the people I talk about in the book is a Black woman, R.A. Williams. She's a missionary. She stands up and says, okay, we can't forget about the crucifixion, right? We know how God works. And just when things seem like all hope is gone, the Messiah, the Savior has been killed. All of our hopes are been dashed. That's precisely the point when he's won. And we just wait, the resurrection's coming. So there's a sense in God who has experienced our sorrow. He's experienced the same kind of pain that we're going through. We see that in the crucifixion of Jesus, but we also know what follows the crucifixion. There's a resurrection coming. So even when it seems like people would abandon and hope. I keep finding a lot of Black Americans writing about excitement about the new century. The 20th century is coming and good things are going to happen. We're free and God still has a plan for us. So yeah, that hope and optimism is still there. It's so powerful, just the fact that there was still so much hope. Mm -hmm. Now, I should say there were some Black Americans who were saying a different story. By 1913 comes around the 50th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And a number of Black people are saying, we're not free. What was that all about? You know, someone said the semi-centennial celebration of freedom is semi because it's also celebrating semi-freedom. Some began saying, we need a second emancipation. And we see all kinds of, in the early 20th century, people saying, all right, where is the next thing that's going to free us? Because we're still not free after the first freedom. And whether that's Marcus Garvey's new movement that comes around in the 19-teens and 20s that promises a united Africa or different kinds of civil rights legislation, or really if it's the Great Migration, that is like, okay, now it is really his time. We've got to abandon the South. We've got to go somewhere else. Maybe we need a new Negro. We see that movement. We need to change our own posture. We need to change the way that we talk and write about ourselves, the way that we interact with white people. So you do see people also saying the first emancipation didn't accomplish what we had hoped it would. But we also see plenty of people at the turn of the 20th century fixated on that moment of emancipation. They go back and retell these stories. They have annual Emancipation Day celebrations. And we think of Juneteenth, but at this time, it was often January 1 was the emancipation celebrations that were taking place annually and said, we're going to stop every year and we're going to remember how amazing this moment was. They use it as a way to track time. It's been 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years from freedom. And they want to count up what have we accomplished? What has God done for us in the last 60 years? A whole new generation is born who never experienced emancipation, but they get dragged to all of these celebrations to be reminded and told and listen to old timers explain what slavery had been like and what emancipation was so that the community does remember 
we experience this decisive moment in history where God intervened to save us, and that defines who we are as a people, shapes the way that we think about time, the way that we think about what God is going to accomplish in the future. And so, even in the 20th century, there are people who are still clinging to that memory of emancipation. You end the book framing all of this around the way that historians talk about Reconstruction into Jim Crow, into the civil rights movement, as if the end of Reconstruction was an endpoint for just like the Black freedom movement in general. But because Black people map themselves onto the Bible and the fulfillment of a promise from God, the Black freedom movement never ended. They always had an expectation that something was going to happen. Part of it might be them having to do the work themselves to attain the full promise. But because they kept this hope and this belief that they were God's chosen people, the Black freedom movement was a continuous line from emancipation straight through the 20th into the 21st century. Right. I think because so many Black Christians were saturated in biblical stories, that's the way that they thought and wrote and talked about themselves. Those stories themselves don't have simple plot lines. There's up moments and down moments. And sometimes the down moments are the up moments. People go into exile and they come back. People are enslaved and then they're freed. People die and rise to life again. These stories have a lot of plot twists and plot turns in them. What you see is Black Americans often imagine themselves as they're in the midst of the story somewhere. And it doesn't mean because things got worse in the 1890s that there's an abandonment of this sense that God is doing something special for Black people, by Black people in this country. It's just a sense that, oh, this is part of the plot. (laughs) What begins in emancipation continues when Reconstruction collapses in a violent mess. Black people keep voting, keep organizing, building communities. They keep building Black businesses. When Jim Crow policies are passed and Southern states move to take away the right to vote and lynching increases, they organize, they create new civil rights organizations. They establish printing presses and publicize all the horrible things that are happening to them. They push, they organize, they boycott. They gather for prayer and fasting They set up overseas missions. They continue all the way through the 20th century. I think there is a a sense, and and other historians have also pointed this, we sometimes want to think in too tidy of a term. Brief moment of reconstruction, total disappointment into the deep, dark night of Jim Crow, where Black people kind of huddled together until Rosa Parks didn't give up her seat in 1955. And then all of a sudden we have a civil rights movement, and the story begins at that. But that's simply not a story that make sense of the way that Black Americans saw themselves. I think about James Weldon Johnson, who wrote the hymn, Lift Every Voice and Sing, which he wrote in the early 20th century. Those familiar with that song might know there's a verse that says, you know, full of the lessons the dark past has taught us and full of the hope that the present has brought us. And he writes that in what historians had called the nadir, the lowest point in American race relations. He's writing this right around Red Summer, around the time of the Tulsa Massacre. He's writing this where Black Americans in the South don't have voting rights. And he's saying now we're in the... (laughs) where we've got hope. The, the present has brought us hope. Um, and all that, let's know, okay, maybe I'm telling the story wrong if I'm telling it that Black Americans are, are just huddled against the despair until the civil rights come. And I, of course, I don't want to diminish the fact that people who lived through that period lived through some serious terror, serious violence and suffering, and, and that's real. But they also saw themselves as emancipated. 
and they were living in an age of emancipation. And that was the bright hope. The, the present was a hopeful present because they were in the midst of a Black freedom struggle and they weren't done yet. They were going to keep going. What I see is a lot of continuity from emancipation forward of Black people dealing with really horrendous setbacks, but organizing and organizing with a lot of hope. That's a perfect place to end. Keep your head up, y'all. Yeah. Thank you so much, Professor. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And one more thing. Keep Your Head Up came out in 1993, the year after the L.A. riots, and was dedicated to Latasha Harland, the 15-year-old whose murder was part of the rage that fueled the L.A. riots. So that's actually just another example of Tupac dispensing some hope in the darkest times. If you know someone who needs that kind of hope right now, share this episode. Ed, follow me on social media at We The Black People Pod on Facebook and Instagram and at We The Black Pod on Twitter. All power to all people, y'all. 